I'm Janet Jacobson. I'm director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I want to welcome you to this evening's event, uh, The State of Feminist Feminism, Post-Election Analysis of Race and Gender. What just happened? That is the question that we are here to ask tonight. Not just what just happened, but what has happened over at least the past year. It's hard, actually, to think back to last spring. So much has happened since then. But this event was decided by the BCRW Advisory Board in that spring, and then in conjunction with conversations with Ann Pellegrini, the director of CSGS at NYU, when we were deeply concerned about what was happening during the Democratic primary season between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And the advisory board wanted to ask not just can we provide a better analysis of what's happening than what we were seeing, certainly in the pages of the New York Times, um, of that particular contest, but also can we think about what has happened to feminism in light of the way that this contest has worked out. Now, in the intervening months, Barack Obama was nominated as the Democratic candidate for president and, in fact, won the presidency in November, and you might have noticed the economy went south, as they say. And then it did it again in January and February. So here in April, we stand well beyond where we were at last March and April when we were making these decisions. And yet the questions that we had at that time still have not been answered or have not been answered as fully and satisfactorily as they might be. So when we tried to think about how best to answer these questions, we had the very good fortune of actually finding ourselves at Barnard and Columbia, and in thinking broadly about people who have been part of the Barnard and Columbia communities, we were able, in fact, to produce what we think is the best panel that could be offered in the United States of America by drawing on people from the hometown crowd, if you will. <laughs> Our two speakers tonight are uh, Laura Flanders, who is, as many of you know, a 1985 graduate of Barnard College. We're very proud of her. She's also a groupie of the center while here and a good friend of my um, esteemed predecessor, Tema Kaplan. Um, so we're very happy to have her back, particularly because she's gone on to such a wonderful career. Laura is the host of Grit TV, and you have to promise actually to show it because I got excited when we saw it. So she'll show you Grit TV at the end which is the new news and culture discussion program. It's online, it's on satellite, and it's on cable TV. And not only is it new in medium, it's new in message. And that's why she's here with us tonight. Laura is the author in the old-fashioned form of books. Um, she's the author of Blue Grit, True Grit, Democrats Take Back Politics from the Politicians, which was published by Penguin Press in 2007, and the New York Times bestseller and well-named Bush Women, Tales of a Cynical Species, published by Verso in 2004, which is an expose of women in George W. Bush's cabinet. Laura has long been part, for as long in today's contemporary new media terms, of bringing a new message in new formats. So she was part of the original um, lineup on Air America, where she hosted the Laura Flanders Show and Radio Nation. And she has been a broadcaster and, and author for more than 20 years. She was the founding director of the Women's Desk at the Media Watch Group Fair, where she hosted Counterspin, Fair's syndicated radio show. She launched the award-winning Your Call on Public Radio KALW in San Francisco, and she is now a regular contributor to The Nation, Ms. Magazine, The Huffington Post, Alternate, and CNN. So we're very happy to have Laura back up here at Barnard. We were sorry to drag her back. Across the street at Columbia University, our second panelist is Patricia J. Williams, who has, in fact, um, spoken for us before, and we're always grateful when she's willing to come over to our side, as they say. 
Patricia Williams is a professor of law at Columbia University, um, and she has had an esteemed um, career in the legal profession and also as a writer both of academic essays in law review articles, um, books that have been read widely, including in um, a range of interdisciplinary humanities um, locations as well as in the law. Just to give you a sense of some of her writings, um, her publications include Anthony Burns, The Defeat and Triumph of a Fugitive Slave, On Being the Object of Property, The Electronic Transformation of Law, and and We Are Not Married, a Journal of Musings on Legal Language and the Ideology of Style. Her books include the incredibly uh, influential The Alchemy of Rates and Rights, which is still taught. It was published in 1993, which is still taught frequently in women's studies classrooms today, and a number of others, including The Rooster's Egg, Seeing a Colorblind Future, The Paradox of Race, um, and most recently Open House on Family, Food, Friends, Piano Lessons, and The Search for a Room of My Own. Professor Williams has been the um, recipient of a number of awards, of awards, including a MacArthur Fellowship. She's a member of the State Bar of California and the Federal Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She has served on and the Advisory Council for the Medgar Evers Center for Law and Social Justice of the City University of New York and on the Board of Governors for the Society of American Law Teachers, among others. In addition, as many of you know, she is a monthly columnist for The Nation magazine and was, especially during last spring, a frequent commentator on on NPR and um, PBS, and so we're very grateful that she's willing to come here and um, share her thoughts with us. Finally, our moderator for the discussion portion of this evening also has her Barnard connections, as they say. Anne Pellegrini is um, an associate professor of performance studies and religious studies at NYU and the director of the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality. She also, as many of you know, was uh, formerly an assistant professor here at Barnard College. We still are sorry that she ever left us. Um, she, too, is the author of many books, including Staging Race, I mean, sorry, Performance Anxieties, Staging Psychoanalysis, Staging Race. Um, she is the editor of Queer Theory and the Jewish Question. And she is the, also the author with Janet Jacobson of Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation and the Limits of Religious Tolerance, and the new et- co-editor with Janet Jacobson of the new anthology, Secularisms. Each person is going to speak. Laura and Pat will each speak for about uh, 20 minutes, and then um, all of them will come up to the stage and, and we'll moderate a discussion between them and with all of you. Laura Flanders. All right. Thank you so much, Janet. It's great to be here. I sort of feel like, you know, aren't you supposed to start these state of the speeches? The state of feminism is good. Um, I think it is good. Look at you. Um, Look at me. I got my first job courtesy of Tema downstairs, and I still have a job. Not the same one, but that's good news in these climates, I think. It's, it's good news. It starts that way. I have to say, I think, you know, the election of last year was good news, too. At least we saw women and a person of color, a few of them actually, in the picture of our politics, right? We have to agree, at least that happened. That was good. Women and people of color went on the sides. They were in the center. And that's a break from the past. I mean, I started the book... Um, this book, Blue Grit, 
uh, on election night 2004, so four years earlier, when I was so frustrated by the coverage of the very few Democratic victories that had happened that night that I just thought, oh, come on. We have got to tell this story differently. And the story that got me most annoyed, and you've got to understand, I was at Air America Radio, so we're grasping at straws for something cheerful to report to people on election night 2004. Across the coast, people's hearts were breaking. Their entire lives had been kind of in the balance between Bush and Kerry. And, you know, my job was to try to cheer them up a little, find some little speck of hope somewhere so that they would, you know, keep listening and keep engaged. Uh, and remember that politics isn't one guy. Although the way you cover elections in this country, you might think that was the case. In 2004, the story that really got me hopping mad was the uh, coverage of uh, the one Democratic governor's race that got a lot of coverage, which was, anybody remember in Montana, Brian Schweitzer? The only good news of 2004 for Democrats was that a Democratic governor had taken over the governor's mansion in Montana first time in 16 years. Read the coverage and you would believe that the only reason Brian Schweitzer won was because he wooed Westerners with his bolo tie and his cowboy boots and that he knew how to wrestle a calf. I mean, just Google, wrestle a calf. It comes up in every story about Brian Schweitzer. You would think that's all it takes to win in the West. Whereas, in fact, when you talk to people on the ground in Montana, and I'd happen to do that, don't ask me why, but I had, um, you know, it was 20 years of work by a civil rights movement on the reservations, native populations in Montana fighting for their right to vote, made a huge difference. There are details in the book. A massive coalition of women's groups in Montana had been working for 10 years to increase the number of, in particular, poor and low-income single women who voted in the state, because they overwhelmingly didn't vote there, just like they don't vote uh, over disproportionately in other parts of the country. For once, you saw a coalition between Native Vote, the women's organizations, and the environmental groups in the state, who were the, one of the powerful, most powerful nonprofits in Montana, to share resources, share lists, share information, and frankly, the Democratic Party, which had been written off by Washington Democratic Party years ago because they were Westerners, well, since about 1994, they'd been blissfully left alone by Washington consultants and figured out that actually the way to win elections was to work with people at the grassroots rather than lecture them, um, which had been the typical model elsewhere. So, you know, there was a lot more to the story than met the eye, and... That was 2004. In 2008, we at least had, as I said, Hillary Clinton center, front and center, um, Barack Obama front and center. Uh, later, we had Sarah Palin front and really far right. Um, <laughs> and you had people talking about race and gender, right? Great. They talked a lot about race and gender. Really, they didn't talk about race and gender at all. They certainly didn't talk about racism. And isn't it interesting how our headline writers love to say race as if, you know, they just can't afford those extra actually accurate <laughs> ISM uh, letters. Um, really what we're talking about is racism and sexism, right? White supremacy and misogyny. Uh, but we didn't talk about those things. We talked, well, what did we talk about? We talked about Barack Obama, not the bolo tie and the cowboy boots, but you get the idea. We talked about his personal profile. Where did he come from? His family, his mother, his father, his this and that. Okay. Hillary Clinton. 
the person. What do we know about her family? Where she comes from? Blah, blah, blah. We saw fewer stories about the politics of our political candidates in 2008 than we had ever seen in any year up to then. Meaning, if you go and look at the Pew study of how many articles were actually dedicated to the politics of either of these people, there were fewer than in any preceding election. If you want to ask beyond the people, what discussion was there actually of racism and misogyny, sexism, white supremacy, any of these things, the coverage was almost non-existent. Because at that point, of course, you're not talking about people, you're talking about power. And you're talking about power relations. And our media do not like to do that. And in fact, we're not great at doing that. We need practice, and we don't get much practice in the media. I mean, what we, we had plenty of opportunities for a discussion about how white supremacy and misogyny continue to pervade our culture and our society, even in a year when you had a black African-American black man running and a woman running for the nomination of the Democratic Party, and it wasn't the first time there was a woman running um, for the presidency, and it wasn't the first time that a person of color was running from the for the presidency. But you almost never heard any mention of Shirley Chisholm, and you almost, well, you, you rarely uh, heard any mention at all of other candidates who had run. So you, um, you got the stories of the people, you didn't get stories of the politics, even when there was an opportunity to have that conversation. For example, when Chris Matthews came out cons consistently on CNN, right, and talked on one occasion about how Hillary Clinton was like the nagging housewife whom everybody loves to hate, that was treated kind of like when Don Imus spurted what he said about nappy-headed hoes apropos of the New Jersey women's basketball team as some kind of strange aberration having to do with Chris Matthews' just bad mouth, bad boy habits. Maybe some knuckle-wrapping for the guy. No discussion of where that comes from, why that stuff resonates, why it continues to be powerful to put down somebody by using language like that, and why it still somehow becomes then a topic of discussion. Well, is she somebody? Is she like a nagging housewife whom everybody loves to hate? Maureen Dowd talked about Hillary Clinton as the Terminator, was it? Now, again, Maureen Dowd, Chris Matthews, even... You know, the, the, the liberal's favorite friend on, on MSNBC, Keith Olbermann, there was a certain point during the nomination debate where he said he wished somebody, what somebody needed to do, he said, what one of the delegates needed to do, it was during the delegate debate, what one of the delegates needed to do was to take Hillary Clinton into a room, and he phrased it such that the phrase included, his, his language included, so two of them should go into the room and only one of them come out. Now, this casual deploying of references to, about violence towards, in this case, a woman, about hating women, about women being scary exterminators, you know, this isn't just Keith Olbermann's problem or Chris Matthews' problem. It's all of our problem. And it would still be our problem if we got rid of those guys, right? I mean, it works because it's rooted in something. It's rooted in a habit of dehumanizing certain people on the basis of their race and gender and class and you name it. We have habits in this society based on our history that endure and that you just see the tip of the iceberg of. 
when people spurt this stuff because it's easy for them to say that comes quickly to the mind and it resonates and it gets you high ratings in talk radio. So we talked about the people. We didn't talk about the politics. And when Geraldine Ferraro came out and said that the only reason Barack Obama was as powerful a candidate as he was was because he was black, there was no smart discussion about what she meant. And there was no true discussion about what kind of attitude was implicit in what she said. When Gloria Steinem said in an article that she claims was edited by her editors at the New York Times that gender is the most oppressive force in America, the conversation then just became a catfight. People of color versus women, and what were, people, what were women of color supposed to do? I have no idea. <laughs> right? Racism versus sexism? That is not the feminist project. The state of feminism is we get beyond that kind of either-or. Right? At least the vision of feminism as we get beyond that kind of either-or. I thought that the feminism that I was part of in the 80s had suffered enough from the either-or, had been weakened enough by our own racism, for example, as a white woman, by our own homophobia, that we'd made a commitment never to do that again. I also thought that we had enough good memory, because we have good women's history teachers, to remind us of the really bad deal that feminists cut with themselves and society in the 19th century, by which we saw a split between the abolitionists and the suffragists over suffrage for African-American men after the Civil War. It's not like there's not history here. We've paid a price as a society for, being, for agreeing to go along with those kinds of this, you know, one or others. So did we see any more complicated conversation about how oppressions relate? and how white supremacy benefits from most, and how our economic system benefits from all? I don't think so. And as we move to the current moment, I think we're in a very tricky spot. We have a situation now where for years we've been told, well, you know, we can, women are not the experts on the important issues of the day. Because the important issues of the day have been the areas where women aren't in much visibility bombs and bullets, right? Well, the issue of today is bread and butter. We've been told in the past, those are women's issues. But somehow the women have all dropped away. Well, they were never there, to be honest. But if you want FAIR, the group that I worked with for years, and they, I really recommend them, they do media criticism based on something other than gut instinct of, ugh, they actually go and research and watch all the stuff you don't want to watch every day and they justify your ugh with really good statistics. Um, they studied six months of coverage of economic stories on PBS and found that one in five of all sources was female. One in five, we're the majority of the population, remember that? We've got the female story, if you want to think about things that way. And that's the competition between families <laughs> and finance. 86% of families in poverty headed by single women, mothers. 86% of all our bailout money going to private, invest, private businesses, mostly headed up by men. You've got people talking about a new deal. I mean, whether you talk, just to roll back for a second, whether you're talking the people at the bottom of the wage scale or the people at the bottom of the housing world, you're talking women. 
60% of African-American women received those um, predatory loans. 60% of women with, with, with uh, mortgages received those predatory loans. They could have got other kinds, but that was the kind they were given. Who are the first fired, the last hired? Women, people of color. This is a women's story, people. The economic meltdown that we are in the middle of, it's a women's story. And while people are talking about a new deal, I was at a forum the other day in Brooklyn with the lead organizer for Domestic Workers United. And I said to her, you know, it's great the work you've been doing, advancing this Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. Why do we need one? And she said, well, because the laws that were written around workplace regulation and safety laws and wages for you know, hourly wages didn't include certain groups. They didn't include farm workers because they were mostly immigrants and we weren't in, in favor of them at the time. And women were covered, were not covered under, you know, domestic workers were not covered under those regulations. And I said, hmm, a lot of people are talking about a new deal. When did those regulations get passed? Oh, in the new deal. So we don't exactly want another new deal. We want a really new new deal. And yet still, although women have been out there critiquing the agenda of this administration and the one that preceded it, there aren't enough voices of women in the media to counter a single GOP representative when he gets up on the floor of the Congress just minutes after the first stimulus package um, has been proposed. And he says, oh, this is going to send millions of dollars for abortion. Remember that? It was all over the news. It was a GOP talking point. There wasn't one person who would defend financing abortions, support supplies, you know, uh, resources for low-income women as actually a good thing for the economy. There was not one person, not even really in Congress, but certainly not in the media, who said, wait a minute, the best answer to your critique is not that it's not accurate. There aren't millions going um, to abortion clinics for people who can't afford abortions and women's health centers, because that was the only answer we heard. No, 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 I wouldn't do that. It was in the budget. The real answer was, of course it's in the budget. You want to help our economy grow again? You want to put this economy back on track? The first place, not the last place you have to go, is to poor women and to families. You think it's a great idea that people who don't want to have kids should be forced to have them in this economy? Nobody said that. Because still, while we have Barbara Ehrenreich and Julianne Malveaux and Anne Lee, who we had on the show today, and Nicole Mason, and I could go on and on, Heidi Hartman, who've been reiterating the critique of feminists since the 1880s, that at the center of our economic problem is exploitation. Exploitation is the issue. If we're divided men from women, pe women of people of color from white people, we will never deal with our big oppression, which is the oppression of the economic system. The, the woman that brought us Women's Day, Clara Zetkin, was writing about this stuff in 1889. The women I've just mentioned are in that tradition. And yet even today, after all this advance for women, and people of color, and race, and gender. We're allowed one economist, and he looks like that. I mean one critic of the Obama administration, that one. He's not bad, but he's not the only one. I'm sure you would agree, Nancy. And still, the way they put women, the, 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 the place that women still have on the cover of magazines, 
is this one. So I don't think this is the problem, but I think it is a problem. And the state of feminism, I don't know. I never wanted a state. I wanted the whole world, so thanks. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm pessimistic, too. I, I'm <laughs> um, but I, I'm going to try to... Um, uh, talk about a very narrow range of, of issue um, here just uh, for the sake of, of, of false optimism, perhaps, but just just a little bit. Um, I'm going to narrow my scope. Um, I, am, uh, I, am, I am... I, too, share all of Laura's uh, concerns. Um, the things that keep me um, hopeful, if I can use that word, Um, is that I think the Obama administration, as uh, complex and as the the burdens upon it (laughs) may be, um, is at least aware, is at least aware um, of some of the problems of, of, for example, the shovel-ready projects, which literally imply uh, an industry, a construction industry in particular, largely dominated by men. Um, and, and if you look closely at the council, the new council that he just set up on women and children or women and family, I can't remember, it, 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 one of the specific concerns it addresses is to get some of the money in the pipeline um, to women in need, um, to families, to, uh, to, to those women in particular who have been uh, victimized by the subprime mortgage uh, scandal. Um, the, um, I'm also going to, you know, sort of not talk too much about the appalling, appalling display of competitiveness of racism versus sexism that, as, that Laura talked about. Um, uh, that pained me from beginning to end. Um, I am not going to talk about Sarah Palin as a substitute for Hillary Clinton um, in that very facile, uh, ridiculous gesture of, of um, John McCain and assigning her or Carl Rover, whomever you want to blame for that. Um, uh, although I actually think that there was something of a wake-up call um, to many people. It was so vulgar as a gesture <laughs> um, that people, some people woke up about that. Um, I, uh, I, I, I can't talk to the media either because the media, when I listen to Glenn Beck, and I unfortunately listen to Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh a great deal because every time I run out of things to, to write about, I just turn them on. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I do think that the media is a lost cause. The large commercial media is, to some degree, a lost cause at this moment. Um, when you open, even after all we've been through, in terms of the um, fairly interesting discussions or issues that, that, that were presented by this election, um, you open U.S. News & World Report, and you see that poll that was covered to, 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 to some fair degree, because it was so appalling, um, asking readers to whom they would entrust their child if she were running a daycare center. Hillary Clinton, Sarah Palin, Nancy Pelosi, or Michelle Obama. Now, it was a low point in the use of the as-if, in the use of the subjunctive. It was as witlessly and transparently sexist as wondering whether sheetrock, who could sheetrock a wall better, Howard Dean or Rod Blagojevich. I mean, it was just wasteful use of, of imagination. And so what I thought I would do, in order to perk myself up just a little bit, um, is to narrow my discussion to the question of symbolism. 
um, because that sort of operates on a level that uh, the media doesn't have control of, um, that the naysayers don't have control of. And I do think that it is important um, that the White House has Barack Obama and Michelle Obama um, at the forefront on the front page every single day. Um, and so in that, to that small degree, I think that there has been something like a bit of progress. Um, because one of the things that really depressed me at the beginning of this campaign most um, was, in fact, when Michelle Obama was being defamed in horrible terms, very similar to what Hillary Clinton was simultaneously enduring, um, um, about how she you know, was no cookie baker. I mean, it was almost the exact terms that Hillary Clinton was deflamed, defamed in when, by when she was um, the first lady of Arkansas. I mean, it goes back quite a long time, this type of sort of defamation. It was utterly ignored, or it wasn't even heard as sexism. Um, to the extent it was heard as insulting, it was more about racism, um, but there was really no way in which the notion um, that race and sexism were intersecting at this sophisticated moment in history, um, it simply wasn't heard. She was really falling between um, the cracks. And what has happened in the months since, and it really has been barely a year in which she's become come more and more to the fore, more and more out of that... Um, uh, uh, that, that, that box of despication with, with which he began, um, it's, it, it seems to me that um, as sexist under one model it is to describe her arms and her clothes and her femininity, um, there's a peculiar kind of... Um, uh, there's a pe peculiar kind of pleasure I get out of her depiction. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, when Deborah Gray, write, Deborah Gray White rather, wrote her book about stereotypes of black women, um, you know, she divided them up into five or six categories. I can't remember all of them, but there was the Mammy, there was the Jezebel, there was the Tragic Mulatta, um, um, there was sort of the, the, the black woman as strong as an ox, um, or in other words, as a cipher for um, something which was masculine. Black femininity was really a cipher for masculinity or for something that was not um, permitted to be really feminine um, or even female. Um, to the extent that we have had political wives who are black, African-American political wives, they are either invisible. I mean, did you even know Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton were married? I mean, they are really very much in the background. They're part of, they're part of a very conservative, I think, place in black families that political wives or wives generally of a middle class of a certain class stratum um, are invisible. Um, they're, you know, they're the quintessential church ladies. Or if they are visible, if they are on the public stage, they are tragic for figures. They are Coretta Scott King. Um, they are Betty Shabazz. Um, now, uh, Michelle Obama is none of these. And I find that kind of refreshing. I don't want to romanticize this by any means. Um, but as somebody who has worked in a world where, you know, to sort of come up, you know, during an, a year, an era when, you know, the whole focus of the civil rights battle at a certain point around the figuration of black women was that, you know, black is beautiful, black is beautiful, but yet nobody ever, ever believed it. Nobody ever took it seriously. Um, it was um, an attempt to co-opt what was, you know, the definition of being black, as Langston Hughes described it, is, you know, was, the, was, was, was to be despised. Um, so it is, again, not to 
romanticize it, but maybe to think about her figuration as a kind of appropriation and to think about how much she unsettles um, what has happened in the recent past. Um, and because she is so genuinely beautiful and so elegant, um, I find this, again, refreshing. I also find it unsettling, not in and of itself, because I don't think that that works entirely either, because it does come across as a little bit of romantic, sort of a little girl fantasy. Oh, my God, finally we have arrived. I don't mean it that, but it's, it's also against the background of other slight unsettlings that the Obamas have been able to accomplish, because every time Barack Obama kept talking about his single mother, Everybody, you could just see them, you know, from Joe Biden to me, quite frankly, would say, oh, black single mother. Single mother has been so much a term associated with black women, black welfare women, women who spit out the babies. You know, it's, it's you know, from Reagan era onward, we, you know, the, the black, black single women or single women are automatically black. And you had to sort of blink and you had to sort of turn it upside down and say, oh, yeah, his, his, his single mother was a white woman, a white single mother. Um, and I think that that was a sort of interesting persistence um, of perception that people got startled every time they saw his single mother. Um, and I think it was also interesting, you know, unfortunate but interesting also that Sarah Palin um, was, again, contrasting. I mean, just, and, and it was really, it was, it was very interesting that Sarah Palin um, was performed sort of the contrasting baby machine for many people. Um, and again, I say this not to defame her in any way or to really condescend or whatever, but I think that the image of who is supposed to be the baby machine in these, in these contrasting of black versus white candidates um, uh, or black versus white family situations, um, the unwed single mother um, gets performed on the other side of the equation in a way that was delightfully confusing, I thought. And it, yes, this may be schadenfreude, but again, it's a little unsettling in terms of what has so dominated our national conversation about these things. And so I, um, I like this sort of gentle transgression, even today. I mean, even today on an international level, I don't know if you saw um, how... Um, <laughs> how incredibly in a kerfuffle the British press is because uh, um, uh, Michelle Obama met the Queen and actually draped her arm around the Queen's shoulders. And I thought this was superlatively, superlatively transgressive. Um, um, and the significance, I think, may be pretty invisible um, to most of us Americans. But years ago, I had a friend um, who said that the reason that the British so mourned um, Diana was that she touched the people. And I said, oh, yes, you know, she touched me too, you know, in my heart. And she said, no, 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 I don't mean that. She literally touched people, um, that the royals do not touch people. This is not about metaphor. Um, it's that she reached out and she touched them, grabbed the lepers and the bathroom babies, and she held them on her lap, which no royal had done before. Um, so symbolically to colonial, you know, people and to the British public, this was enormously significant. Now, the queen is quite old school. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this was, this was a moment of, you know, a, a very precarious moment when she did this. And, and, you know, a lot of things could have happened at that time. Um, but when Michelle reached out and put her arm around the queen's shoulders, it was done so graciously and warmly that the queen rather automatically reached back. And I found that was what was most remarkable about this moment. Um, 
That was the truly astonishing part when she reached out and put her frail little old lady hand around Michelle Obama's waist. Now, this could have been, in other words, a George W. Bush cracking Angela Merkel's shoulders moment. <laughs> this could have been a real disaster. <laughs> um, but instead, it was a kind of graceful transgression on a symbolic level that has everybody just over the barrel. Um, it was a symbolically crossed wire that quietly turned the old world upside down, but leaves you smiling at how beautiful the new world kind of looks. And again, I think you know the, the idea that this gesture actually pulled from within the queen, Queen Elizabeth, you know, a return gesture, I found quite, quite, quite interesting. And again, this is not the same as curing world hunger, I confess. But I do think that the Obamas have been enormously skillful at turning things upside down on very subtle levels in very little ways that ultimately are going to sink in and make a kind of difference. Um, similarly, you know, if that's one kind of transgression that moves us very gently, very softly, again, this is not a huge leaping off a cliff, um, but it is one that sort of allows us to imagine a new kind of future. It doesn't really, you know, it's not like, you know, and there have been a number of people who've gone to the royal family because they, you know, they want to undo that kind of class bias and hierarchy um, in more straightforward ways. Um, but I, I, I do think even the matter of gift giving, as much as people have been um, <laughs> upset about that, you know, says a little bit about um, um, is, is a little insistence on class priorities that, that's again transgressive. Um, it may be oversight, but I like to think of it as transgressive. Um, and I think, but I think another area um, of the Obamas reveals a complexity of American family and thoughts about feminism. When I was coming up, you know, in the 70s or so, um, the white feminist move for liberation, so-called, um, was a move into the workplace. Whereas for most African-American women, us African-American descendants of slaves, and I appreciate the demographic has changed dramatically in the United States since then, but at that time, the, the civil rights population of that time for black women was to move not into the workplace, but out of the workplace. It was the ability to be a homemaker as a luxury, to literally make a home where homelessness or the, uh, the, the, the sort of the inability to, to, to rest at home and raise one's own children um, was too much a trope for who we were. So um, when not just Michelle Obama moves into the White House, but her mother moves into the White House, um, I love this image. And I, I, I do think it sort of recaptures you know, something old-fashioned that is genuinely American or old world, or, I mean, it's, it's the rest of the world. I mean, this sort of notion of extended family, um, which is a counter to the notion of nuclear family, which has dominated the American landscape since the 1950s, um, or since we expanded into suburbia, leaving relatives behind. Um, but this, but I think it models a notion of family that is extended, expanded, that includes neighbors, that includes also an African-American definition, which uh, would encompass um, people who foster, people who adopt, um, people who live together out of necessity or out of a sense of desire for community. Um, and I think that that reconfiguration of a smaller, mobilized family spreading out to enjoy boom times um, 
I mean, spreading out to, to, to support each other in the lack of boom times, excuse me, um, is important. Um, and Marion Robinson, um, Obama's mother, I mean, Michelle Obama's mother, has been largely responsible for that family's ability to devote themselves to public service. Um, she and her late husband never attended college but sent both of their children to Princeton, and she only recently retired from her job as a secretary, but she's been the one who's kept the girls' lives to a normal routine while their parents have been on the campaign trail. She's the one who got them to school, supervised homework, and put them to, dead, to bed. And I think that this timing is right for an iconic American family that depends on a granny rather than a nanny. And in the last few years of exhaustion and economic downturn, there has been a shift away from thinking that the floors will mop themselves or that mothers or fathers can really effortlessly whip up a 30-minute gourmet meal after a long day at the office. And, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, I guess there was a big article in Salon or Huffington Post, I can't remember, which described um, Michelle Obama as being mommified in the press, um, which I think the press may have done to a greater or lesser degree. Um, but I also think that the way in which she has actually modeled motherhood has been an interesting one. Um, because I think she has, to a greater degree than any first lady in my recollection, um, acknowledged how hard it is to be a parent, um, that it's hard to earn a living in a modern workplace, um, that it's very hard to be both parent and a worker, and it's damn near impossible to do both without a whole lot of help from other people. Um, and the promise that many of us in women's liberation and the feminist movement of my generation thought was that fathers would be parenting partners and that women might have it all, I think it seems to have migrated away from questions of open doors and equal pay and collapsed into the burdensome lie that any individual woman or man should be able to do it all by themselves and all at the same time. And so then we have the sort of dizzying and hilarious spectacle. I mean, that's the other thing I sort of saw coming out of this collection, uh, this, this election, um, was a, a, a strange kind of modeling of um, parenthood and politics um, as though Sarah Palin were really running for president and, but, and Michelle Obama were really running for uh, against Hillary Clinton. I mean, it was, this, it was this weird way in which all the women were playing against each other even more than the, um, the, than the, than the, than the, two, than the two presidential candidates. Um, but, you know, shortly after the election, you had a dizzying and really, to me, quite hilarious spectacle um, of Sarah Palin trying to negotiate her last spate of interviews um, in the kitchen, if you recall, just literally in the kitchen, juggling questions about energy policy, double standards, and handmade potholders. And it was such calculated imagery of tight walking. She was in a jeweled necklace and a black Oscar de la Renta, Renta suit, stirring stew and serving hot dogs, expressing her intention to call Hillary tomorrow to express her gratitude for cracking that glass ceiling. So again, this image is one why I resist. It's one reason I th resist thinking of Michelle Obama as just mommified, um, as some have called her. I think she's doing one thing at a time. She works, she shops, she mothers, but she remains sane. She relies on her mother, her brother, her coworkers, her friends to make things work. Her husband has done the same and very specifically modeled doing the same. 
in a way I've seen very few presidents or presidential candidates do. And their dependence on a close network of others is a fact. And as a result, I think their life seems quite balanced. They're consistently calm and collected. Neither makes work look irrelevant or parenting look like a dead end. And their children shine with that reflected intelligence and calmness and their own good manners. And as our culture becomes more varied and diasporic, and as our economy continues this awful downward spiral, I suspect we're going to have to engineer new hybrid models of both work and family. And like the Obamas, we will learn how to depend on one another in cycles of sharing and independence, foregrounding certain talents at one point and others at another, just as Michelle Obama worked um, or was the prime breadwinner for many years um, while her husband was doing public service. Um, but has taken somewhat of a backseat now. Um, and the role of primary breadwinner may go back and forth between partners over the course of a career. And in a globalized world, the education of children can certainly no longer be considered an entirely domestic affair or derogated as lesser or merely women's work. And ultimately, the American workplace, as soon to be modeled, I hope, by the by these occupants, by these new occupants of the White House, cannot, must not remain so enduringly hostile to the needs of family life. And I think I'll stop here. Thank you. You know, when Janet and I were talking about this event and sort of imagining the conversation we wanted to hear, one of the questions we were wondering about is what would have happened during the election season last year if Hillary Rodham Clinton had given the kind of address that Barack Obama had given on race. So he gave a very complicated, interesting address about race and the question of the, the history of racism in this country, which dropped. That conversation was not continued, so we would have loved to have heard, heard that conversation continued. But what would a conversation about gender or sexism have sounded like if she had presented such a conversation? Moreover, what would we have wanted to hear as opposed to what would she have said? And further, what would it mean to speak at those intersections? And I think our, the conversation we've just heard, the presentations from Laura Flanders and Patricia Williams, give us a sense of, of what such a conversation at these intersections of race and gender and racism and sexism, not as competitive terms, but thinking them complexly together could sound like. So thank you so much for that. Um, we are going to open up to discussion, but I think I'll take the privilege of asking the first question. And I'm going to channel Janet Jacobson a little bit here. It's a question about social movement. Um, so, I mean, I'm really interested in, um, Pat, what you were talking about in terms of, you know, the kind of false optimism, and we need some, right? Thinking with symbolic politics, but not saying it's going to do everything, but how it can accomplish shifts in the imagination um, to maybe make possible imagining something else. And it seems to me to connect to something that Laura was talking about with respect to Montana, right? The idea that the election of that governor was not because he could wrestle calves, um, but had to do with 20 years or more of social movement. So people working on the ground locally, glass, grassroots activism that was bringing together coalitions. So I guess I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit together about the relationship between sort of the kind of imaginative leap and grassroots. I mean, because one worry is there was this amazing mobilization of grassroots for Barack Obama. Now what? Right. How do we get people to do more than sort of, you know, check their Twitter or Facebook, whatever it is that we've been checking? Was that directed I'd to me? I'd love to have the two of you talk together about this question. I'll go first. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things that, that again, I, I'm hopeful about, and I wasn't so hopeful about it just prior to the election or prior to the, even the inauguration, um, was how to mobilize all of that enormous energy. Mm -hmm. 
um, that people came together in ways that we really have not seen. Uh, you know, millions and millions of people showing up for the inauguration, um, people waving flags who haven't waved flags in their lifetime. Uh, you know, this, this, you know, suddenly banner bravura was everywhere. And I think that that was um, an energy that shouldn't be squandered. Um, and one of the things that I have some hope for is the new national service platform and the degree to which several of the councils, the Science Council, the Council for Women and Children, or whatever the appropriate title of this is, um, there has been a huge effort um, to, to link that, um, or maybe I should say, to, first of all, to decouple it from specific expectations of Obama, the singular man. Um, because that was what was worrying me, that the expectations for him would be so great that no single human being could ever live up to them and that they were akin to a kind of idol worship. Um, and I think he's actually begun to rechannel that very effectively into calls for national service. And I don't think it's entirely visible just yet, but in terms of the organizations he is lining up, to um, engage in national service projects, everything from AARP to, um, um, you know, to, 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 to the ways in which things will be funded, also sort of redirecting the Office for Faith-Based Service, faith, faith, Faith-Based whatever it was, <laughs> initiatives, yeah, um, to turn that into a more secular um, uh, call for uh, national service that would, uh, that would, uh, that would disperse some of this energy into um, uh, constructive projects, um, arts, theater, um, coming together, concern about um, family life in particular. I think that's a, a, a very high on his agenda. Well, it's Garden. a good thing Pat's here. Because <laughs> I'm having a hard time maintaining my optimism, although I've been the you know optaholic all this time. I was the one focusing on Montana on election night 2004. Um, and I'm really glad you told the story about the queen. Because mm -hmm. I hadn't seen the television. I had just seen the picture on the front page today of the New York Times. And apart from the fact that it was a picture of the backs of the Obamas, <laughs> which I thought was unfortunate. Um, talk about social movements. There were tens of thousands of people representing... 170 million trade union members outside who I kind of thought deserved a space on the front page of the New York Times as well. Maybe not instead. I understand it was a historic moment, and it was. And as a person who grew up in Britain, the idea that she touched the queen is huge. Although I do have to wonder <laughs> who was briefing her, because that's about the number one first thing they would tell you yeah. would be, don't touch the queen. <laughs> So I do wonder about that. But if you want to talk about social movements, they were outside. And I'm, Patricia has mentioned all the things that make me really happy about the fact Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, and the White House. But I still think that we need to talk about people who are not in the White House, but who are outside. And I'm afraid that we are in a moment where rarely has the divide been greater between people in government and people outside of it. Um, people in power and people suffering for how that power is being used. Um, the trade union movement has its problems, but that's a women's issue too. A Latina's salary increases by 50% in the same job if she's part of a union. A woman, 33% 
if she's part of a union in the same job. And yet we're hearing that EFCA, the Employee Free Choice Act, maybe will have a problem because a lot of Democrats aren't really on board with making it a priority, even in these times. Barack Obama administration, with Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, has just sent 21,000 more troops to Afghanistan on the grounds that the surge worked so well in Iraq, let's have another one. The women of Afghanistan never asked for troops. Help, maybe. Money, maybe. Engagement, maybe. Reconstruction, maybe. But Hillary Clinton knows better. She knows it's not at the end of a barrel of a gun that we'll see the end to the misery of life for people in Afghanistan and women first and foremost. Somewhere deep down in her heart, maybe, I think, the woman who once said women's rights are human rights knows that war is fundamentally misogynist. And the first victims are female. So I'm a little worried about movements because on the peace side, we're hearing a lot of people lining up behind this deployment who were campaigning against George Bush on the basis that war was wrong in Iraq and the surge was wrong there. And now suddenly, apparently, we found a surge we can like? I'm concerned. So I was thrilled. I think that, in fact, the enduring impact of the Obama campaign and the way that he waged that campaign, which was a very, you know, blue-grit kind of a strategy, has empowered people all across the country, which will pay off in the future. But right now, I'm seeing the leaders talking, and I'm seeing the same mistakes happening, and I'm seeing a huge crisis on our hands, and we don't have the movements to address it. And, and, and can I say, can I, can I take this back to the symbolic level? Yeah, because please. I think that, I like because, that. I, because I think that, you know, again, I, I think that um, a lot of the expectation that it would be different as to these things is also part of the um, general stereotype that Barack Obama was going to be so radical that everything was going to change overnight. I did and think people, he'd, people, he'd support EFCA, though. I, I think that people ignored the fact that Barack Obama, you know, people, and you even heard Rush Limbaugh saying, you know, that, you know, he's, he's in a Harvard Law Review, that radical organization. Never before has Harvard Law Review been called a radical organization. <laughs> And it's because he's black. And, you know, it's, it's literally that, you know, what he, t- he has the Midas touch of blackness that everything, that, you know, it's, it's the New Yorker cover, um, that even people who didn't believe that they were terrorists believed that he was far less centrist than he actually always has been. And he's always been a phenomenal centrist. And then people sort of imagined that he was channeling, you know, the, the black activist of their choice. Martin Luther King, I think, was the most popular one. You know, the, what would, he is Martin Luther King. What would Martin Luther King do? He's not Martin Luther King. I mean, he's God. a very smart man, but he has been a centrist. University of Chicago, economic theory, people were surprised he didn't ha- draw Krugman into it. He's University of Chicago. I mean, and, and so I'm not surprised at that level. All right, so That's why the question I was about my imagination. <laughs> the question was about imagination and social movement. Yeah. I would like to imagine that social movements that help to elect this guy, and they did, many of them, fully conscious that he was not perfect, could imagine themselves, on the one hand, saying, we're really glad he's there, and on the other hand, saying, no more troops to Afghanistan and pass Africa now. Is that too much to imagine? Of us? He's done his job great, and so is Hillary Clinton. What about us? 
Yeah, I mean, but that's a, that seems like a separate question. Yeah, I mean, probably. that seems like a separate question not having to do with the election. It's the same question I have about why, you know, we American lawyers, why my colleagues as, you know, American law professors didn't go to the streets like the lawyers in Pakistan when we had torture in Guantanamo Bay. I mean, there's a, you know, th that's why I have no faith in, in the, that the media is going to move us right now or that the, the things, you know, that, that's, that's, that is where my pessimism lies, that that's... We're, we're, we're very far from that kind of transformation. Well, I hear the suggestion that we should hit the streets now, but before we do that, <laughs> I'd like to open up to questions and, um, with the audience. And there is a mic, so if you could raise your hand and we'll get a mic to you and then I just ask you to stand. It's a pleasure to get to see both of you at the same time. Um, I am, I, I'm so happy that you can draw such faith from, or, or such schadenfreude even from symbolism because what struck me about the Palin moment was how quickly a white woman whose daughter has a child out of wedlock turns into a hero for encouraging that I was actually, even I was stunned to see how quickly things mm -hmm. could shift uh, and this could be a sign of positive morality and family values instead of the erosion of both. Now, there's a, there's a question that has been bedeviling me and, and if you feel it's too far off topic, I hope that you will duck. Um, and that is that I am, I am stunned by the economic program that Barack Obama appears to be embracing, first with the appointment of Geithner and then with the embracing of Geithner's embrace of Paulson's flawed plan. And it, it stuns me for a lot of reasons, including the fact that I just think of Obama as being very smart. And I think that the, the flaws with the plan are, are very, very obvious. And, and I also think he has, as Paul Krugman said when I saw him Monday night, limited time and limited credibility. I guess I wonder when he, and, and I'm, I'm not stunned that Barack Obama is a conservative. I knew he was when I voted for him. But I, I wonder when he hesitates so to nationalize the banks, how much symbolic weight you think he feels about being the black guy in the office? You know, when he takes a very passive role about syringe exchange and allows the high-level segment that just took place in Vienna to release another 10-year plan for global drug policy without the words harm and reduction next to each other. When he embraces a Geithner economic plan, I guess I, you know, I'm asking you the impossible and possibly something that you feel is too far off from gender. But why, you know, I, I am bedeviled by his embrace of certain positions. Incidentally, um, to defend not only Paul Krugman, but also Hillary Clinton, at least she opened her mouth and said the war on drugs has failed, um, which has certainly taken an enormous toll on, uh, on the trio of women, children, and families. So any thoughts that you have to share, I would greatly appreciate. It's a pleasure Joseph to see you. The, uh, the traffic on the Mexico border that we should really worry about was the tra traffic, not of migrants this way, she didn't say that part, but of U.S. guns that way, which I thought was helpful. There was an interesting article in the New York Times in January, I think it was, about a fight in the White House um, between Axelrod and Geithner. And I bet it wasn't just Geithner, it was also Summers. But it was between the finance guys and the movement political guys. And the Times was very clear that the finance guys won. Um, those are the guys that were in the Clinton administration um, that I think came in with the campaign after Barack Obama won the nomination. I think that he's up against a tremendous... I mean, if you read Matt Taibbi's piece in Rolling Stone this week, 
You pick up the cover with the gossip girls licking the ice cream cone. <laughs> Inside it is really a really good story um, by Matt Taibbi about what he calls the Wall Street coup d'etat, where he says it's not about money, it's about power. And it didn't happen you know, since Paulson came around. It's been happening over the last 30 years. And that whoever occupies the Oval Office is up against it. Even if they felt like being up against it, they'd be up against it. Um, in this case, I think, you know, we again, I'll put the onus back on us, we have a media that has trained us to know social issues pretty well. They like to co cover those social issues, usually to beat up on single parents and people of color um, and blend the two. Um, but we've done less good at really understanding economic issues. Uh, and understanding the way finance works and understanding how our economy got to be this way. And Taibi even says, you know, all the acronyms they throw at us and surround this issue with the SEC and this and that and this and that um, help to modify it even more so that when we try to get our heads around it and say, actually, I think this is insane to give any possibility we had of single-payer health care to the same people that got us into this mess, we know that there are other ways to immediately respond to the crisis of one in 50 Americans in this country being homeless that do not involve first siphoning money through hedge funds. We know better than that. When normal people say normal sounding things like that, we're told, what could you possibly know? Because you don't understand how the stock market works. So, I mean, I'm, I'm dodging a little bit on, you know, why Obama, but I think the onus is back on us, that we have a hugely stacked deck when it comes to the politics of this country. And I'll close by saying, you know, the media have scared us half to death about the prospect that government could take over the banks, when the reality is banks have clearly taken over government, and that's what we should have been worried about. Yeah, and I... I I was surprised that, that, that I, I thought Krugman would be in the White House the first day. I was actually surprised that, I mean, I guess I'm naive about that. But I know that. I know that. I was very surprised by that, too. I was really quite surprised by that. That, that, that Obama mispronounced Krugman's name um, disappointed me. Um, but, uh, but I do think that, you know, to the extent that anything happens because of public pressure, it is also true that um, you know the ignorance of uh, or the illiteracy, as Taibbi called it, of of um, economic realities is um, is going to present a kind of public pressure that will um, you know that, that that mitigates against nationalization or much of anything else at this point. Um, and so I don't know enough about the pressures that he faces in the absence of that kind of political pressure from um, broad political base. Um, but I, you know, I, I've, I, I'm more familiar with the kinds of um, concerns that people have expressed about why they're not prosecuting the Bush administration for war crimes, and you know, I, I am very familiar that there are some very practical reasons why, which has to do with the judiciary. You know, there's, you know, you're not going to get it through a Bush administration appointed judiciary, which is what the federal judiciary is, looks like right now, and that there, so that there, I, do, I imagine that there are practical mm -hmm. concerns to the same degree around some of this, but I, I don't know enough about it. I mean, talk about symbolism. Wouldn't it be fabulous if Barack Obama or Michelle gave their next press conference in front of one of the tent cities that's growing up in their backyard and made a case why we had to, in fact, circumvent the banks this time and just give money directly to poor people? Um, I think they would get away with it, don't you? 
Thanks, both of you. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, I was in college about 10 years ago when only kids from Chicago knew who Barack Obama was, and Hillary Clinton lost all her power when she tried to fight for universal health care. Um, and then at, at that time, I went to a women's college, and I went to a historically black university, and one of my favorite conversations with my friends was, who could be elected president first, a woman or a person of color? In America, you know, it's usually about a black person. Um, and I wonder what you guys think about how, um, if you were thinking about that going into the election. I, didn't, I don't really engage with mainstream media, but I didn't really hear that, discuss that dichotomy. And um, so what do you think about that and maybe what you would have thought about that question before this election? Well, I, I think that's why it was important that Laura mentioned Shirley Chisholm. Some, you know, this, this has been thought about. There was history. There was precedent for that question. And it didn't have to be a woman or a person of color. You know, you could have, we could have had um, a woman who is a person of color. Um, we've had those options before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the media raised that a lot. Are we ready for one? Are we ready for the other? And I think, you know, the, bits, the bit of... Well, the, the really good Gloria Steinem op-ed that appeared before the one I mentioned um, said, we're ready for both, and we've been ready for both. Get over it. Can we get on with the election? You know? so, and I kind of agreed. Well, I, I wanted to, it, it, it to broach uh, the fact that you know, I, I, I support all these uh, movements. Um, what I've noticed here, and I hear in a lot of almost all of these speeches, is that the issues of people with um, disabilities I've never brought up because the um, there are lesbian women, people, uh, women of color who have uh, disabilities, um, and women are very much underrepresented, uh, underrepresented but um, I don't know any member of Congress or the Senate who is a person with a disability. Um, and it, and it consists of they consist of about twenty to twenty five percent of the u s population. The actual accurate figures could potentially be higher. Another thing that uh, upsets me is that it, although I support the feminist movement because although I can never undergo an abortion myself and I do appreciate that, I resent very much how the stem cell embryonic stem cell research debate centers around um, that it's promoting abortion when the expansion of embryonic stem cell research would certainly lend to having fewer people with disabilities and for those who do have them that they would be less fatal and less unpleasant to live with. I think that the disability rights movement is um, an integral part of the civil rights movement and you're right it's the one that's overlooked over and over and over again, and it seems to me that part of the, um, you know, there's a there's sort of stigmata for each category of the civil rights movement and its piggyback movements: the women's movement, gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual movement, immigrants' rights, and so forth. Each one has its 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 particular peculiar kind of stigma. And I have a colleague who's actually. Um, suggested um, that gender is implicated in, in, in the ways in which we um, treat each of these and as, as follows. You know, that, that for example, um, when it comes to race, we, we sort people so that they are um, like with like, um, that blacks have to be with blacks, or historically, um, that blacks are sorted by, you know, um, 
segregated into um, like categories. Um, when it comes to marriage and domesticity, the norm is that it is um, like with unlike, <laughs> um, that it has to be, you know, that, that, and when you put same with same, you know, that's what the stigma is. Um, and when it comes to disability rights, um, dis dis disabled or people labeled disabled, uh, the stigma is that you were neutered, basically. Um, that um, and that's been the, the you know the history is that you're not supposed to reproduce or that you're not and so it's interesting the way in which the stem cell debate has been uh, uh, inflected with this with this question of stem cells and reproductivity. I mean, it, 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 there's this odd way in which it comes from um, one side to the other. The, 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 the question about stem cells is almost a little bit anachronistic at this point because stem cells. I mean, for all of the um, Public um, response to the stem cell signature that Obama, or the, for the for the for the right to do stem cell research in the United States that Obama signed last week, in fact the technology has sort of moved on now because people are not or researchers are not using embryonic stem cells. Um, they now have the technology to take adult cells and allow them to reproduce in the same way or cells from the from an adult body and have them do the same thing that embryonic stem cells could do. So to some degree, this is really a debate that's beside the point. It's, it's moot at this point in terms of the technology. Um, but it, it's not moot in terms of how the, uh, of the structure <laughs> um, of the religious objection to it and the way in which it pitted um, the interests of um, uh, a whole category of people labeled disabled, um, and the figuration of um, the preborn, um, and uh, which one should have priority in that sort of kind of theological imagination. Um, and I think that ultimately um, what happened is, the, is that disabled people in that debate um, were, were rendered not just silent, but also neutered according to this, this kind of analysis. Right, and I'm going to say you are a feminist because you make us think. And I, I thank you for coming. And you, you've actually raised this point with me twice in three weeks. No, no, no. And I, I, I thank you for it because you, you, you made a good case then and you are making it again today because I didn't change anything. And, that, you know, in the feminist sense, you think about personal as political. My father, I grew up with a father in a wheelchair. This is a very personal issue for me that you're right. I have not integrated into what I talk about. So, you know, I thank you for that. And I've got to think about why the heck not. So just a model for all of us who think we're know-it-alls. Um, we deserve criticism and can take it, too, and I thank you. I was thinking about the question on social movement. And, um, I mean, I completely agree with the things you're saying about the banks and, you know, I count myself as a leftist and so on, but I, it does bring to mind to me that do we have to have social movements that are only related to issues? Mm -hmm. Do we have to have social movements that are only related to identity politics? So for me, the hopefulness of the Obama campaign is that the social movement was about changing the environment mm -hmm. in which we have political discourse. It's not necessarily about the issues. It's not necessarily about abortion or... Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I think the hopefulness of feminism is that there isn't one truth, and somehow we can come together to create things when we disagree with each other. Um, so, I don't know. I was just wondering how we can see social movements in another way and how feminism can play a part in not 
doing the either-orism, as you said before, categorizing things in this way, and maybe we don't need to have explanations for everything in such a way that divides us. Zen feminism. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, one of the things that, I mean, this is a little off the point, but it's, it's, I'm still sort of resonating from the last question, and, and one of the, um, you know, one of the things that feminism certainly, in my mind, stands for is a kind of, or, or, or feminism and the question of race, um, and the question of piggyback civil rights movements is a kind of um, interdisciplinarity of, of thought um, and, uh, you know, uh, really looking at what the commonalities, what, what you know, again, the whole Sarah Palin thing, we're not really looking at bodies. It doesn't require a vagina in order to be, a, you know, a feminist, so to speak. And so if there is that intersectionality, um, one of the looming issues I see is sort of going to be the new civil rights movement writ large um, has to do with bioethical questions, um, has to do with what is also largely a woman's issue at this point, um, but I think is going to be an issue having to do with all of our status um, very shortly, which, and that's the Human Genome Project. Um, and this involves issues of race, of so-called disability, of disease, um, and of gender, um, it's going to have very serious implications. You see this already in terms of whether or not, um, you know, certain in vitro fertilization clinics are going to screen not just for deadly diseases, so-called, um, but also for hair color and for eye color. I mean, there's a whole new eugenic movement um, of predictive analysis through DNA. Um, and there are questions, you know, that are being raised by, for example, members of the deaf community about whether or not when they select for a child who is likely to be deaf, um, whether or not that's going to be permissible or not, um, whether or not somebody who wants a child who's a member of the community of little people, um, whether or not those potential children will be eliminated. Um, and uh, there are also people like James Watson who are describing, um, you know, an effort to create a whole new, what he calls a species. Um, that is to say that every baby who popped out would have an IQ of 300, and they would represent sort of a new war of the world, you know, the over people and the under people, and you would have nothing in common. And, of course, if you create a market for this, then, you know, you wouldn't, who would want, you know, nobody would want their kid to be the dumbest one on the block. And if you live in New York, you know that that's true. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but this kind of a new eugenics um, through, through, the, through biotechnology and reproductive technology um, is one thing that I fear that's going to be a new part of our civil rights movement. But I also think that particularly in the United States, where we have no nationalized um, health care, um, that insurance is going to be a new kind of civil rights movement. Um, that the ability to use this sort of predictive um, screening um, is going to mean that people won't get jobs because, for example, they might have a disease that is going to not be value-added. I mean, if we have a more and more econometric analysis of who gets into what school already. You know, if you're, if you're too old, you can't get into a medical school because you won't live long enough to, make, um, to take advantage or to be able to redistribute um, um, that allocated education. And I do think that, you know, the matter of who gets insurance, the triage of medical care, um, is also going to be another um, emerging civil rights issue. Well, I just have to say, 
that I don't think the survival of the planet, which I think hinges on the survival of women, is an issue. And I think we can go too far in trying to move our feminism into a non-threatening place, which I'm afraid has happened a lot. Not at Barnard, but in some parts of the academy, in some parts of our media, we can have some sort of discussions about what's sexism in terms of politeness and this and that. But we have shied away from the fundamental questions of exploitation and something for nothing, which unpaid parenting is, and the discrimination and exploitation of the most vulnerable, which is still at the heart of of white supremacy, imperial supremacy, you name it. So for us to try to say that there's a way to do feminism that isn't threatening or that really doesn't, adri- you know, doesn't address power in the world, um, I think it's crazy. And particularly right now, where it's not a detail. I really think the world is on a brink. I mean, if you care about most people who live in the world and the planet on which we live, <laughs> if you don't care about those things, we're fine. Um, but I do think we're on a brink, and I think that we have decades, in fact, at least a couple of centuries of smart feminist analysis that says women are at the root. They're the canaries in the coal mine of our society. They're at the root of whether a person or a community thrives or fails. And the degree to which we exploit women, and ipso facto women of color first, the degree to which we exploit the most vulnerable is the degree to which our society is out of kilter and will not be on a sustainable path. So, you know, I'm not ready to say it isn't about issues. It's about issues. (laughs) Issues is our survival. Call me crazy. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I've enjoyed hearing you two tonight. My name is Renina Jarman. I'm from East Oakland, California. And I run a blog about hip-hop and feminism. I've been doing so. Hip-hop, feminism, and social justice for the last three years. What's it called? Model Minority. (laughs) And I have a very specific question. I'm interested in um, both online and offline um, community activism and building bridges between the two. I came across a website called change.org recently. And in my mind, it... uh, it constituted sort of petition activism. And I asked a friend, you know, what, what can I do? I want to work with them, but I want to move beyond petitions. And he said, well, you need to figure out how to engage with them critically. Um, my question for you two is, if I'm online and I'm blogging and I feel committed, what are two things that I can do to reach out to people who have indicated that they care, but they're doing so solely online? You could invite them to a meetup. <laughs> no, I'm serious, actually. You know, I think that the politics, the, 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 the engagement that moves us most and gets us involved is that touch, the reach out and touch that Michelle did to the queen. And the queen reached back. I love this. I'm going I'm to keep on loving it. Um, you know, the online is fabulous, but I think that the juice that keeps you involved in work for social change, which is hard work, comes from the people that help you do it with you. I mean, that do it with you, and that you do it for, and you 
and they do it on your behalf. And and that's real life people, I think. I mean, I always suggest, you know, take on a challenge that you can actually win because that's exciting and it'll give you the gumption to do the next challenge. And take it on with people that you can actually touch because you can have some fun along the way. I'm not saying you can't do it online and maybe this is a good time to play the Grit TV video. Um, and I involve, I'm involved in the media. But I think of the media and, and particularly broadcast media, which is about, you know, hearing a voice and hearing another voice and seeing a face and hearing a voice, um, is about introducing people to one another in the hopes that maybe they will actually do something together next time and not just sit in separate rooms. So that's my, I say, have a meetup, see who shows. Um, hello, thank you for coming. Um, I'm a junior at Barnard, and my question is, I, I guess, quite common. Something that I see is um, feminism itself is becoming a minority, it seems, um, because the label is so stigmatized. So what do you think uh, feminists, like, um, for instance, if I tell my friends that I'm a feminist, they take a step back uh, as if it's a new information. I think it goes simultaneously with being a woman, but... You know, what can feminists do to deal with this stigma and, um, you know, educate people about their ignorance, I suppose? What do you think, Pat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's the same question as, you know, you know, affirmative action is a stigma, you know, and you, you really have to think your way past that. You have to be brave. I mean, you, you know, if, if assuming it takes bravery. Um, but, you know, there, the, 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 the degree to which people will um, sap the positive meaning out of anything that's threatening um, is just a reality. Um, you know, and, and as with affirmative action, you know, I'd much rather be, you know, called stupid on the inside of a great institution than, on, than standing on the outside. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, you can take affirmative action, which is affirmative, and turn it into a negative. You can take multiculturalism and do what has happened during the culture wars and turn it into the equivalent of monoculturalism. You know, everybody's multiculturalism is Afrocentrism. Well, no, it's not. Um, you know, it's, it's, but, you know, you can invert the meaning um, faster, and, and you, you sort of have to stay again, uh, you know, uh, uh, you have to stay on top of it. I mean, there are lots of strategies, I suppose, for recapturing, for co-opting, um, you know, you co-opt it back and forth, um, you know, you can, um, you know, it's, it's what happened with black or, you know, you know African Americans have had a long tradition of sort of turning, inverting meaning as a way of recapturing it. Um, but, uh, you know, you can't, you know, I, I think you have to keep your eye on the, the larger ball, which is, which is not, I mean, it, it, you know, because you can run away from labels forever, you know, you know, it's, it's and sometimes, you know, to rename yourself is a is a liberating thing. Like from Negro to African American to whatever, you know, from colored, you know, there's there's there are there are moments um, in which it's helpful, and yet on the other hand, you know, it can be exhausting to keep reinventing yourself. And so the the bottom line um, is to be very clear about the principles, the underlying principles involved, um, because otherwise you're driven by the labels a little bit like you know. Some people were driven by the fact that we want a woman candidate, and so somehow you're supposed to accept Sarah Palin as the woman candidate. Um, so, so don't be too fundamentalist about it. I mean, it requires some um, fluidity, some um, ability to you know leap from ice flow to ice flow. <laughs> um, 
depending upon the context and when you're about to be buried by you know connotations, um, you may want to leap to another label. But uh, you know, you, it's, you know, carry it proudly in the meantime. I, it's crazy that we're still dealing with this, really. But um, yeah, I mean. What's feminism? Feminism is understanding that what gender you are and are perceived as having makes a difference in your life and that there are powers apportioned along race and gender class lines and gender's right in there. I think the best answer is I'm a feminist, watch me. You know, get over it. Yeah. And it's not what I call myself, it's what I do and take a look. You know? And I and I think it's it's particularly hard because it isn't really, you know, it's 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 somebody wants, you know, it's 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 really one of those uses of language. Somebody says, "Are you a feminist?" You know, it's sort of like, "Are you a Christian?" You know, so people, you know, people are drawing a line in the sand, and they mean a lot of layered things about than that. They, you know, they may mean what Laura says, but they also may mean, may mean, you know, do you hate men, or do you, you know, are you a lesbian, or are you, you know, it goes to the core of some identity. It's in a, it's a, there's there are ways of asking this that are quite assaultive. And in that sense, you know, it is a little bit like, are you a Jew? You know, it's, it's like at some point you have to put your foot down and say, we all are. You know, or it's, it's what happened during the civil rights movement or, or in South Africa. You know, we are all black. We're not colored. We're not going to divide us up into fragmented groups. Um, you know, we're not going to have a quasi or a semi-feminist or, a, you know, a right or a left. We are all, you know. And then hold up a mirror. You know, really what you're doing in bearing that is, you know, to hold up a mirror to all of the hatefulness that is the layered connotation um, that people are throwing in those accusations. Because it's, you know, yeah, yeah, we can define it according to the most positive. Uh, but you know that's not what is making you uncomfortable when people say that. Um, so, you know, you have to have the bravery to say, well, yes, maybe I am. Or not today. <laughs> not yet, I think, is one of the answers. That, you know, so, not yet. You know. um, there are so many T-shirt slogans waiting to be born, just in yeah. that example. Um, so I th is the media all queued up? I think the media is all queued up. Um, Grit TV comes out of this project in a sense that uh, I wanted to continue the conversation. And I appreciate that the, a blogger is here because I think we're in a moment where, while well, I share Patricia's disdain, and this clip is three minutes long, so don't panic anybody. Um, <laughs> while I, I, I share her disdain and, and lack of tremendous optimism around changing um, conventional media, we are at a moment where unconventional media and um, more creative media are coming into their own. And even just the name of the World Wide Web is kind of a deeply kind of easily recognized feminist kind of idea that, in fact, your power isn't in the big mallet you have on the top. It's in the connections that you have at a lateral level. So Grid TV, we're online, we're on satellite, we're on cable, we're on our first public television station. We're produ we produce in an open and interactive way. Anybody can, can contribute videos and commentaries and news and whatever you want. Uh, we'll take a look and play a lot of it. Uh, we hold monthly meetings called Grit Group, where grassroots groups and others come and talk to us about what they're doing and pitch ideas, and we don't promise to play them all, but we sure do play a lot of them. And we platform grassroots media and independent uh, documentaries, including documentaries in progress that we give people a chance to 
uh, reach out to the filmmaker and help them finish it. So you'll see in this, you'll see um, a reporting that we did in uh, D.C., then a, a whole town hall series that we did during the election year where we traveled all around the country and held free public conversations about critical issues. Uh, you'll see one of the documentaries that we feature just a little bit, some of the guests that we have on, some of the groups we work with, and I hope at the end it ends with our email, I mean with our website, grittv.org. I hope you'll check it out. Um, we do accept interns and uh, <laughs> always happy to hear from Barnard and Columbia graduates and NYU graduates too. <laughs> Take a look, Grit TV. So I want to thank all of you for coming in and um, thank uh, Anne Pellegrini for both her moderating and her co-sponsorship. And most of all, I want to thank Laura Flanders and Patricia Williams. We, I was right. We could not have gotten a better panel to talk to us about these issues. <laughs>